When we think of the Renaissance, the first artists who come to mind are probably Michelangelo, Botticelli and Raphael. But the first artist who was famous in his time was their contemporary, the German artist Albrecht Dürer. You'll definitely know one or more of his works, perhaps his astonishing self-portrait in which he, a man of 28, with long curly hair and a beard, gazes at the spectator in his furs, an image designed to evoke comparison with Christ. Or his praying hands, two male hands together in prayer, in ink on blue paper. Or his images of animals, his young hair painted with near-photographic verisimilitude, or his woodcut of a rhinoceros, or his Adam and Eve, his Madonna and Child, or his pictures of St. Jerome. He was both a creative and a commercial genius. And today we're thinking about his range in terms of styles and mediums and in terms of the boundaries he crossed. A new exhibition at the National Gallery, the first major UK exhibition of Dürer in nearly 20 years, situates him as an artist in time and place, because he was, unusually for the time, a great traveller who went both to Italy and to the Netherlands, and whose fame stretched across Europe. Long-term listeners of this podcast will remember today's guest from her astute commentary in the two-part special on Hans Holbein a little while ago. For the exhibition's curator is Dr Susan Foister, Deputy Director and Director of Collections at the National Gallery in London. She's been curator of early Netherlandish, German and British painting at the National Gallery since 1990. Susan, thank you so much for showing me around. This is an absolute treat. Why should we pay attention to Dürer? I think it's hard not to pay attention to Dürer when you have the experience of looking very closely at one of his prints or his paintings, because the way that he represents nature or the human figure is so very extraordinary. The effects he creates of atmosphere, of detail, of individual likeness, in some ways, it almost seems very modern, the way that he observes constantly. Perhaps you could introduce him and tell us about where he is in time and where he comes from. Well, Dürer was born in Nuremberg in 1471, which I think was a pretty good place for an artist to be, a place that was quite open and encouraging of creativity. Dürer's father, the elder Albrecht Dürer, came to Nuremberg from Hungary as a goldsmith. And that was Dürer's first training. Right. But I think his father must have been quite a tolerant man because when Dürer had trained as a goldsmith, he said, no, I'd like to train as a painter. And his father then apprenticed him to the painter Michael Volgemut, which I think was a really fantastic start because he then combined the skills of metalworking with the vision and skills of a painter. And we're looking at a picture called The Painter's Father. Yes, so we think this is an early copy of a lost painting by Dürer of his father, who looks, I think, stern but wise, perhaps. He's wearing this brown coat, which is lined with fur, a black cap, against this rather brilliant, ready orange background. 
I think it's a rather beautiful image. It is rather beautiful. And what do you think the character or sort of culture of Nuremberg, what effect might that have had on the young Dura growing up? It was a very well-connected place. It was a trading centre. I think they could justifiably think of themselves at the centre of Europe. You could travel there very easily, north, south, east and west. There was a lot of trade and there were very good connections with Italy. People in Nuremberg went to university in Padua, for example. The merchants traded with Venice. So this was all very well set up for Dürer himself to be thinking of travelling beyond Nuremberg as he grew up. Mm. OK, so talk me through what we can see here. Do we have some of his early work? Well, this is his first woodcut, so should we mm, stop yes, on this stop one? Early on in his career, Dürer did what other young artists in Northern Europe did. They travelled around to get experience. And Dürer went to Basel, which was a great place for book publishing. And there he started to design woodcuts such as this one. So this is, we think, his first known print, a woodcut that's the frontispiece to an edition of the Letters of St. Jerome. And it shows, of course, St. Jerome in his study with his lion. But it would be decades before Dürer saw a real lion. It's amazing, though, that this is such an early work, because by comparison to the later, it does look naive, but it's still really very well done. Yes, I mean, the original woodblock for this print survives, but Dürer probably wouldn't have cut his own woodblocks. We know he did make his own engraved plates, but for woodcuts, there were very skilled people who would cut the woodblock after his design. I see. Okay, yes, because you're doing it in reverse, aren't you? You are, yes. But the design is all his. The design is all his, and yeah, 1492, so he would have been just about 21 when he made this. And then there are many other woodcuts made for books in Basel that have been associated with Dürer. So he starts with woodcuts, but I guess having come from a goldsmith's training mm -hmm. might be one of the reasons why he has such an extraordinary range, doesn't he, of things that he works with? Yes. I mean, I think being able to work on a metal plate was absolutely key. And the person he particularly admired for doing this was the printmaker Martin Schoengauer. So because he was making large, dramatic, luxurious prints, and he was signing with a monogram, MS, that was what Dürer aspired to with his ambitious prints signed AD. Yes, and the monogram is something I've seen again and again on his work. Does it become his stamp? You know, you know that it is. It's absolutely key. And he wanted the world to know that these images were made by him. And he was quite protective of that. I mean, a bit like protecting copyright. I mean, he took a very entrepreneurial stance on his work. Quite early on, when he had established himself as a maker of luxury prints, really, and books, he employed agents to go out and sell his works. So he wanted all of that money to come back to him. That's really interesting, because we think of so many artists dying penniless, but actually he's showing sort of commercial acumen as well as creative genius. Yes, I mean, his godfather, Anton Koberger, was a book publisher. So I think Dürer had the idea of what book publishing could be. So it wasn't just about having an artistic vision, which he certainly had. It was about being an entrepreneur as well. What should we look at next? Well, we could cross the Alps with Dürer. So very early on, he set off from Nuremberg over the Alps. And this watercolour shows the town of Trent, which he visited. 
I think it's really interesting because I think in the past people used to imagine that Dürer, rather like a 19th century romantic painter, sat on top of a hill and painted with his easel what he saw. But this watercolour is very much an edited view of what he saw. Ah. So he must have made sketches, brought them back to his studio and then produced what he wanted. And what he wanted was just one single hill, so he removes all the rest. No people, there must have been people, but you just get buildings. And then this focus on this really beautiful series of reflections in the river in front. So he's honing his craft and presumably going to Italy was a way of learning more about it. Learning more about all kinds of things. I mean, he was going to create material for himself that he would then use in prints. And actually, if we go over the other side. So this is the kind of image with which Dürer really cemented his reputation. The large, dramatic engraving. And you've got this contrast between pure white background at the top and then this detailed view of a valley in the foothills of the Alps. So this is identified as a little place called Cusa that survives today. And it must have been based on one of the watercolours that Dürer made during his first series of journeys over the Alps. But you can see he's very interested in female proportion. And that study of proportion was something that he had started in Nuremberg for sure. But I think going to Italy also helped him to explore. So it's a kind of interest in humanist approaches to the figure. I mean, thinking about it as a real figure, I suppose, which would have been something that he would have learned from, I suppose, Italian artists. Is that right? Or... I think it's a combination of what he observes himself, because he's such a consistent and detailed observer throughout his life. And then he starts to read, for example, Vitruvius on proportion. And he obviously must have found out more about what the Italians were doing and reading up on. And then he tries to fit the two together. Right. And I actually like this one next to it. The four naked women. Yes, this is often called the four witches because you can see in the background the devil seems to be exploding through the floor <laughs> there. They're also rather like the three graces, aren't they, in the way that they're posed front, back and sideways with the fourth one just behind. So again, it's this interesting combination of something that may have been inspired from Italy but also seems very northern in this idea of fascination with witches yes. and devilry. Let's talk about the lion. Oh, yes, the lion, yes. Well, you said over there that it was decades before he saw a real lion. Yes. Had he seen one by the time he painted No, this? absolutely not. So this little watercolour shows a lion, or Dürer still imagining a lion in 1494. And it's one of these beautiful studies that he made in order to provide material really for himself that he was going to be able to use in compositions like the little painting of St. Jerome opposite, which obviously draws on this lion to place him in the wilderness next to St. Jerome. It's really beautifully done. And there are touches of gold, for example, in the oh, grass, yes. in the background and in the fur of the lion. So it's a very thoroughly worked up study. 
But I think Dürer was still using his imagination here. I mean, that lion is not terribly well posed on the ground. He's got rather long ears and he's a little bit dog-like. It's very much like a dog, isn't <laughs> <Yes>. it? <laughs> With a slightly human face yes, as well. Yes, he's got a wonderfully human face, I think. It's very, very sympathetic, that lion. Yes, it's very Aslan. And tell me about the Jerome, because that is just wonderful. So you've got the lion. You've got the lion, and then you've got this beautiful background. So Jerome is the saint who is chastising himself in the desert in Syria, but this is very much the landscape around Nuremberg, I think, with the little Gothic spire of the church in the background and the fir trees here, and this beautiful effect of sunset in the background. So this was a period when Jerome was studying nature very, very intensively. For mountains, he studied quarries around Nuremberg. But he went out and about and he made studies of sunset skies. So it all comes together so beautifully here. Little birds by the stream in the foreground. The detail of this is absolutely exquisite. This is what he could do as a painter. And we come into a much bigger room. What should we look at here? Here we've got many of the works that Dürer produced on his second visit to Venice in 1505-7. And we know quite a lot about that visit because he writes back to his friend Willibald Pirkheimer in Nuremberg to tell him how he's getting on. We've got one of the letters that Dürer wrote here. Now this is interesting. We've talked before about Holbein and how there was you know, nothing left of his written voice. But with Dürer we do have it. What does it tell us? With Dürer, we have masses of written material, and some of it is quite surprising. I mean, Dürer had a great sense of humour. These are very jokey letters. He jokes in this letter about finding a grey hair for the first time. He's having a lot of fun in Venice. He bought clothes, he went to dancing lessons. But at the same time, he was very serious about his work. And he was annoyed that the Venetian painters, or some of them, seemed to gang up against him and resent his success. And he tells us that they thought that he was only really good for working in black and white because he was famous for prints. And he wanted to show them that he could use colour. And he says he stopped their mouths. He was so successful. Yes. I mean, look at this one next to us. I mean, I love the reds in here. Yes. So... In Venice, Dürer was commissioned to make a great altarpiece for the German merchants in their church of San Bartolomeo. And what we've got here is an early copy of that altarpiece. And you can see how extraordinarily colourful Dürer makes it. The figures in the foreground are the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian wearing these brilliant red robes. And then figures around, some of them are merchants. One of them is a man called Burkhardt of Spire, who we can also see in a little oil portrait over there. And in the background, you can see Dürer himself. I wondered if that was him, the person looking at the spectator. I don't know if anyone else is. Is he the only one? Yeah, I think he's looking directly out because he's definitely saying, this is me and I created this. Look at me. The faces are so well realised. I mean, you really feel like you could walk and see somebody like this on the street today. You know, they feel so lively, to use a 16th century phrase. They're very specific, they're very well studied, and he made a lot of studies for this painting. We can see one of them on the right-hand side, which is for the merchant kneeling on the right there, wearing this sort of heavy blue robe. And he's made this on a special type of paper that you could only get in Venice, this rather coarse blue paper. 
that Dürer seems to have loved using. It makes for very three-dimensional work in the way that he uses it with black ink and then white highlighting. It's very three-dimensional. And then later on throughout his career, when he doesn't have access to this paper, he would just paint sheets of paper and then use the same technique. Because it really does extraordinary things with fabric, doesn't it? That use of the ink and then the highlights. We can see the folds, it looks incredible. It's very detailed, you get a real sense of the heaviness of that cloth. He was always interested throughout his life and his travels in what people were wearing in the local fashions, so he often studied those quite closely. I've seen this reproduced again and again, his Adam and Eve. Yes. Such an important one. Yes, Adam and Eve, I think, was one of the prints by which Dürer was best known. And we can also see how it inspired a whole a raft of other works, paintings, drawings, even sculpture. It's the culmination of Dürer's study of the human figure at this point in 1504. And you can see here, there's not just the AD monogram, but there's a plaque hanging from the tree with the parrot there just sort of placed so that you really notice that. And then when you read it, of course, it tells you that Dürer made this, made this image. <laughs> so he was absolutely determined that you would know that. But there's a beautiful contrast, I think, between this very muscular body of Adam and the soft flesh of Eve. It's all beautifully captured, as well as these effects of light and shade and the shadow that's cast across Adam's leg, for example. And it's one of these things that it's very small. We're looking at something smaller than the A4 sheet. And there's so much detail in it. The detail of the curls and the hair. Mm. Yes, the tree trunk, the effects of bark, I think, is absolutely extraordinary here. The sort of slightly peeling bark and the sense you get of very distinctive types of vegetation. And you can keep looking at it and then sort of suddenly see the goat or, you know, cattle. I mean, it's Yes, more and more emerging from behind the trees in the background. There's so much detail there, and he's so skilled at representing different textures. And if you imagine him working on a copper plate with this little needle, the skill and control to do that is absolutely extraordinary. That is. To work on that scale, I don't know how people do it. I think that's why his early training as a goldsmith was so significant for him. It set him on the path to be able to create this kind of innovative work in engraving. How groundbreaking was Dürer's work? Obviously in his technical skills, the way in which he developed the art of printmaking, he was really ahead of his years. I mean, there are other wonderful German printmakers at this time, but Dürer really stands out in his experiments, in his achievements as a printmaker. We're coming back again and again to this idea that he is very good at promotion. Mm. And it seems unusual to me. Obviously, everybody's looking for patrons and everybody's trying to get ahead as artists, mm. but he has this amazing skill to put himself sort of centrally in everything he does, whether it's with a monogram mm. or mm. with an inscription. Is that unusual or am I just getting the wrong end of the stick? I think it is unusual. And I think what's perhaps particularly unusual is the sort of way in which Dürer saw himself as an international figure. 
and his fame wasn't going to be confined to Nuremberg or the area around that part of Germany. He really did see himself as an international figure. And of course, his prince established his international reputation by traveling all over Europe and being used by other artists. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. 
corpse, really. And there are sort of horrible worms or snakes coming out of his head. And then on the right, there's the devil, who's made up of different animals with this huge horn coming out of his head. And there's a skull to the left there. So I think the idea here is that this is the Christian knight who is going through life towards death, not looking to right or left, not being distracted by these really fearsome creatures. It's a very powerful image. It's so beautiful in the detail. I mean, I think we've seen some very detailed prints already, but I think the way in which Dürer manages these variations in light and shade and texture here in the background and in the different figures is really, really quite extraordinary. Once again, it's that extraordinary level of detail on such a minute scale. Yes, it really is. You can hardly believe that a human hand had made this. And there are two more here in this sequence. So in 1514, Dürer made two more very ambitious prints. And this is Melancholia I, a very extraordinary and still quite mysterious image of melancholy. And melancholy is really presented here as a creative artist who is stuck in her creativity. It's a very extraordinary image that you know, has been associated with Dürer himself and what might have been going through his mind as an artist. How do you keep up with this constant creativity? Can it be blocked? And if so, what can unblock it? So Melancholia here, her face is in darkness. And all the light is going on in the background, but it's still nighttime. There's the sea in the background and there's a comet blazing above it. That's a very extraordinary vision of landscape, I think quite different from other landscapes that Dürer was producing at this time. And what should we make of all these inclusions, all these objects? I mean, woodworking materials, the dog, the scales? Well, Dürer always likes to include a dog. There's this dog curled up beside Melancholia. You can see its ribs coming through its coat here. But I think there's this interesting mixture of practical skills here. So you've got tools, saw and nails and so on. And then you've also got figures of geometry. You've got this perfect sphere. You've got a polyhedron in the background. You've got the numbers up here. And the figure of Melancholia is holding a pair of dividers. So it's as though to say that the real creativity is not just these practical skills, the sort that you would need to actually create an engraving on a copper plate, but it's also these more theoretical skills. So here is an artist and not just a craftsman. I think that that's what Dürer wanted to promote, the idea of the artist and the creativity. And the final master print takes us back to the theme of St. Jerome and the lion again. And this is 1514, and Dura has still not seen a real lion. That's yet to come. But there is a beautiful and very sympathetic portrayal of a lion sleeping in the foreground here next to the little dog. These beautiful, sleepy animals with this wonderful representation of their fur. You always want to stroke it. It's so tactile, isn't it? And then also this beautiful depiction of light coming through the windows of St. Jerome's studies. I think it's so subtle the way that the light falls through that bottle glass window and is reflected at the side there. 
at the same time as Dürer was making these wonderful master prints, he was also working for the Emperor Maximilian. He made, along with some other artists, some very large luxury prints, I think you would call them, prints that celebrated the Emperor Maximilian and his achievements. And Maximilian ensured that Dürer was paid a pension. So he was actually quite canny about this, the emperor, because he didn't pay it directly from his own coffers. He got the city council of Nuremberg to pay it directly to Dürer. But in 1519, Maximilian died, and Dürer was very concerned. How was he going to get this pension to continue? So he conceived the idea that he would go and talk to Maximilian's successor, the Emperor Charles V. And he thought that he should go and see him crowned at Aachen in the autumn of 1520 and talk to him. So Dürer set off from Nuremberg up the Rhine. He went to Aachen. He did see and talk to the Emperor Charles V and get his pension re-established. But he spent a whole year in the Low Countries from the summer of 1520 to the summer of 1521, and he obviously had a great time there. What would he have seen there? What influences would there have been on him in the Low Countries? He saw life around him. He settled in Antwerp, which was becoming a bigger and bigger trading city. There were many merchants there, including German ones that he became very friendly with, Portuguese ones that he equally became friendly with. And he also met a lot of artists there, he became very good friends with some artists, somebody like Joachim Patanier, who invited Dürer to his wedding, and then they collaborated together. He met Christian II of Denmark. Um, Christian invited him to a banquet. Dürer was very pleased and flattered by this. And then the king wanted him to make his portrait. So Dürer had to go off and find a panel. He had to find somebody to make the colors because you couldn't buy paint in tubes. And he made this portrait, which is now lost. He also met Margaret of Austria, who was the ruler of the Low Countries. He visited her and her palace on two occasions. He saw there the wonderful works of art that she had, including Jan van Eyck's Arnolfini portrait, which is today in the National Gallery's collection. But he wasn't so successful in gaining a commission from Margaret. It seems he wanted to paint a large altarpiece for her. But when he met her for the second time, he gave her a portrait of her father, Maximilian, and she rejected it. And Dürer was really crushed by this, as he records in his diary. He didn't know why she did, and that was the end of the altarpiece idea. Gosh. We know about his travels. We know about all these encounters because we have copies of Dürer's original diary from this period. It only survives in copies. We've got one here. But from this journal, we learn an immense amount of where Dürer went, the money that he spent, the beer that he drank, everything that he did during this time. It's amazing to have that level of detail. It's really fascinating. It gives you such an insight into life in the 16th century. You mentioned in passing his wife earlier. Mm. What was the role of the women in his life? Well, to set up your own workshop as an artist in Nuremberg, as in other places, you had to be married. You had to have a wife. 
And Dürer's wife, Agnes Fry, was very well connected. So her family members were probably very helpful to Dürer in his career. But she also played a very direct role in the running of his business, as indeed did his mother, Barbara. So for example, when Dürer was away in Venice, they were sent to fairs to sell his works. His wife went to Frankfurt, probably with a male companion, but she was there to sell his prints and make money, and also to help in the running of the workshop. So they're his managers, <laughs> they're, his they're his agents. They're his business managers and his agents, and so the family was involved in this business. So this is the painting of St. Jerome again that Dürer made when he was in Antwerp and he gave to his friend Rodrigo de Almado, who was the Portuguese merchant's factor. And they were great friends. Rodrigo gave him lots of presents. He gave him two green parrots. We don't know what Dürer did with them. <laughs> Probably didn't manage to pack them up to bring back to Nuremberg. But he tells us in his diary that he made this portrait very carefully in oil paint. And I think when you look at the detail of it, you can see how very carefully he did make it, he did paint it. I think that beard with the light falling on those gray curls is just absolutely extraordinary. You see almost each individual hair there so carefully painted. And it's a very innovative image of Jerome because you're seeing him in close-up. He's right up close to us, very close to the edge of the picture. And he's pointing at this human skull here in front of us. This was a period where we know that Dürer was really interested in the writings of Martin Luther. And he seems to have been studying the New Testament quite closely. And so I think perhaps eliminating everything that was irrelevant or extrinsic and just focusing on what Jerome has to say about human mortality is perhaps coming out of Dürer's reading of Luther. Why was he so keen to depict Jerome? He seemed preoccupied by Jerome of all the saints. What is it about Jerome? Well, Jerome was a very popular saint, so I think for sure you could easily sell images of Jerome. Then Jerome was portrayed um, in two different settings, both of which gave the artist a chance to show off what he could do. Jerome in a landscape, or Jerome in an interior in his study. And I think Dürer shows at different times of his career that he could do both of those extremely skillfully. So who is this? This is one of Dürer's German merchant friends, Bernhard of Riesen. We know that Dürer spent quite a lot of time with German merchants when he was in the Low Countries. And when he went to Aachen to attend the coronation of Charles V, he didn't take his wife with him, though she came on the journey as a whole. And he spent a lot of time drinking and gambling with the German merchants. So Bernhard looks quite a young man. And Dürer records in his journal that he made his portrait and it's a very, very striking image, I think, partly because of this contrast between that dark red background and the black that Bernhard is wearing. You've got that sort of slight furry impression of coat there, and then this black hat, which is very dramatic against the red. 
And then the way that Dürer's composed it, I think, is very interesting because you get this very, very strong diagonal going from the shoulder to the edge of the hat through his face, through these high cheekbones where Dürer has thrown a lot of light on the upper part of his face and then there's this quite dramatic shade below his cheekbone. And beautiful eyes, you can see those little reflections in the eyes, which are very characteristic of Dürer, reflections of windows, but of course we don't know where they were. Yes, it's a very good-looking man, but as you say, it's so much about how it's been framed and the use of light to bring out his features makes it feel very strong. It's very dramatic. He's holding a piece of paper with his name on it, so that's how we know he is Bernhardt. And then I think it's interesting the way that his fingers of one hand seem to rest along the bottom of the frame. And that was a device that painters in the Low Countries very often used. I think Dürer would have encountered it earlier in his career, but I think when he was back in the Low Countries, perhaps he was very much reminded of that device and decided to use it again here. So if we can just pause for a moment on this sketch that he uh -huh. makes when he's looking out of the window at the menagerie in Brussels. So Dürer tells us in his diary that he goes to the palace at Brussels and looks out of the window and sees outside, well, you can see people jousting in this little sketch that he's made. There's an orchard and there's also a royal zoo. And that was one of the first occasions on which Dürer actually saw lions for the first time. Aha, the and then in this beautiful study here, he's put together a whole assemblage of exotic animals that he's been able to capture. And we've got three lions here. Two of them seem to be asleep. I think Dürer was very attached to that motif of the sleeping lion. But I love this one in the middle with a long tail, just sitting back on his haunches. He looks as though he's sort of shaking that huge mane, looking up. Perhaps he's roaring. Dürer must have been very, very impressed by this sight, I think, for the first time. And I suppose it's through his studies of animals that many people will know his work. The hare or the rhinoceros are going to come to mind. And here we see these wonderful sketches. Yes, I think Dürer must have made separate sketches of all of these animals somewhere and then put them together in this wonderful sheet which we see here. The, the baboon top right is quite interesting because Dürer's use colour, so the baboon's got a pink bottom and blue fur. And that was characteristic and still is characteristic of a certain type of baboon. So shows his very, very close observation. He really wanted to capture the characteristics of these animals. There's a lynx here with his long ears and spotted coat. Maybe the lynx was also part of the royal menagerie that he saw. Uh -huh. And how wonderful that after having drawn lions for so long, he finally got to see them. <laughs> Yes, I think if you compare these lions, particularly the sleeping ones, with, for example, what Dürer shows us in the engraving of St. Jerome, he'd captured them pretty well up to now, but it must have been very, very exciting for him to see the real thing. What do you think Dürer's legacy has been? I think he's one of those artists whose work lives on, and it's never actually died away. His influence on other artists has been constant throughout the centuries in different ways. In his own time, artists were using his prints. They were taking out images and putting them into their own compositions. Later on, I think people were very intrigued by the sort of world that Dürer 
created in the 19th century, particularly. I think people were intrigued by the detail and that interest in the medieval and the Gothic. There was almost a Jura revival at that time. And I think today people know the self-portraits, they know that extraordinary image of Jura looking at us so proud of his achievement and creativity. So I think Jura has been a constant across the centuries, but it's difficult to match his level of skill. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.